You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is where we're going to be today. For those of you that are uh, visiting with us, this is a great day to be visiting because we are starting our new series today on the book of Ephesians. Um, and so we're into year 10 now of our church plant here uh, at Sovereign Hope. And just to kind of recap a little bit about where we've been um, over the years, we've studied the book of Genesis. We've studied the book of Jonah. We went back and studied all the minor prophets. We've studied the gospel of John. We've studied Romans, First and Second Thessalonians, Hebrews, Jude, and Revelation. And so now we're going to add to it uh, our study uh, of the book of Ephesians. And so we took a little bit of a break between the Gospel of John and this study. We looked at the minor prophets. We looked at one a week uh, for about 12 weeks, and then we spent some time uh, late fall, uh, Christmas time, and then into January looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And so now we're going to settle back into uh, more of a traditional uh, verse-by-verse study through a book um, here in the New Testament. And so we bring our attention uh, to the book of Ephesians, I'm really excited about what God's going to teach us uh, through this book. And you may be asking, like, why, why Ephesians? What, what kind of led us uh, to this book? For one, I think it flows really, uh, really cohesively from what we've been learning in the Sermon on the Mount, because what the book of Ephesians helps us to see is that we're creatures who have been brought from death to life to live out those implications that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, think about how Jesus was talking about the, the commands and the requirements of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to, uh, for a large part of that, that body of people, spiritually dead individuals, right? Like he's talking in reference to um, the uh, Pharisees and, and some of the, the, the things that they were doing and their false righteousness. And, and so he's calling to them to be different, right? And the book of Ephesians helps us to see why we can be different why we can live out the things that Jesus is calling us to as we move from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. All right, for our summary sentence today, I want us to see kind of where we're going today. Hopefully we can get the notes up there. Um, Our summary sentence for today, Ephesians teaches us that God wills for dead sinners to become faithful saints in Christ who impact their cities as a result of his grace and peace. Ephesians teaches us that God wills for dead sinners to become faithful saints in Christ who impact their cities as a result of his grace and peace. For our kids, Ephesians teaches us that God saves us from our sins so we can live for him now. As you're writing, I want to read to you uh, the two verses that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, They come from Ephesians chapter 1, and it's verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a traditional type greeting that we see from Paul in some of his letters. If we're not careful, 
we breeze right through it and we miss some of the, the deep implications that are really taking place in the words that Paul chooses to use here. And so I want to draw our attention uh, to some of these things um, as we get our uh, study in Ephesians started. But before we do that, just by way of introduction, Ephesians is not a, not a very large book. It's only 155 total verses. You could probably read it in about 20 minutes if you were reading it out loud to somebody. A um, little bit of background, Paul's writing from a position of imprisonment, okay? So he's in prison. He references that in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 20. Um, it's most likely that he's writing towards the end of his Roman imprisonment, which would put it around AD 62, uh, if you're thinking in terms of a calendar. It's also about the same time that he's also writing the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon. In fact, if you go read the book of Colossians, you'll find that just over 25% of the wording that you find in Colossians is almost repeated verbatim in the book of Ephesians. So as we're studying through Ephesians, it wouldn't be a bad idea to kind of, during the week, read through some of what's going on in Colossians, because Paul probably had both, uh, both manuscripts maybe even working at the same time. Uh, his, his thoughts are certainly playing out as he writes to both of these churches uh, in similar ways. It's a book that, obviously titled Ephesians, we think of it as in being in terms of being written to people at Ephesus, but most commentators believe that it was a letter that was meant to be circulated uh, amongst the other churches in Asia Minor. So if you read some background about Paul in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20, you'll find that his ministry in Ephesus actually expanded beyond those city walls, and he was impacting cities around with the gospel. And so lots of churches are springing up, lots of people are being saved. And so at that time, there's no email, right? There's no text messaging. And so this letter would have come to this church at Ephesus. They would have read it. They would have studied it. And then most commentators believe they were going to pass it along to other churches. So it's written to Ephesus, but not just for Ephesus, all right? Um, he spent about three years in Ephesus talking about Paul during his missionary journeys. Um, Ephesus uh, was located in modern-day western Turkey today. It was a port city that was the fourth or fifth largest city at the time. Uh, there was a big temple there to uh, one of the Greek goddesses, a uh, big place of worship for them. It was one of the seven natural wonders of the ancient world. Uh, so a big, prominent city uh, where these churches are springing up and where Paul was intentional with his ministry. It's a city that we know from uh, both the Bible and from extra-biblical sources. It was a city rooted in idolatry, superstition, occult activity, public sexual immorality, materialism, education devoid of God, uh, worship of political leaders, right? You read that, and hopefully you, you, you hear some of those things, and you say, well, that's not all too different than where we live, right? Um, we certainly live in a place where we, can, we could say that our culture could be described by many of those things. Um, even in the midst of the political change that we're seeing right now. Most of you know individuals on both sides who probably in an unhealthy way put political leaders in a position of worship almost as far as what the expectations are for change that can be brought about through them. This is what Ephesus was like, very much like what we experience, I think, today in our culture. What's the book of Ephesians about? Right? I'm telling you that today we're going to see that God wills for dead sinners to become faithful saints in Christ, but Overall, where do we, what are we, what are we going to see in this book? Uh, it's a book that focuses on who we are in Christ and how we are to live in light of this new identity. That term identity is going to come up a ton in our study of Ephesians. It's, it's a term that's super relevant, I think, for us today because we are prone to 
seek to find our identity in so many different things, right? We're defined oftentimes in our mindset by the money we make, the job that we work. Uh, in, in some families, their identity is wrapped up in what school they send their kids to, right? It's, it's a mark or a badge of honor to say that your kids go to this certain school. Uh, our identity can be wrapped up in a lot of things for our, for our youth, for our kids. It's wrapped up sometimes in the sports that we play, uh, the grades that we achieve in the classroom, right? Like um, how many likes we can get on our social media accounts. A lot of different things that the enemy uses to confuse and confound our minds about where our identity is sourced. What we're going to see is that as Christians, we find our identity in Christ. This book will help us to see a progression of moving from death to life with purpose. We're going to talk about what it means to be spiritually dead, what it means to become spiritually alive, and then what purpose we now have with that spiritual life. It encourages us to remember who we are and what we're supposed to be doing because of who we are. This book's going to deepen our understanding of the gospel and the importance of the church, that the church is central to God's eternal purposes. I can't think of a more relevant time to be talking about how important the local church is in a time where it's becoming easier and easier to disconnect from the local church, right? And you don't have to do it for backslidden reasons. You can do it for health reasons, right? If we're not careful, the next generation is going to be very foreign when it comes to understanding what church life looks like as people continue to disconnect, right? The church is relevant. It's part of God's eternal purpose for his people. This book also stresses the sovereignty of God and salvation, the eternal sweep of God's great plan, believers being lifted from the depths of sin's depravity and its curse to the heights of eternal joy and communion with God. It's a really contemporary book in its relevancy. I told you that um, it's written to Ephesus, but there's no specific issues that are really addressed in this book that are tied to what the people in Ephesus were encountering. There's no personal greetings found in this book that you often find in Paul's uh, addresses of, of different churches, right? So you can read this book and there's no historical context really within it, which makes it very relevant for us because it's not dated in any way. It's not talking to specific people. It's not addressing specific issues. It is written in a timeless way for us today. We're going to talk a lot about what it means to be united with Christ, being in Christ. It's mentioned a ton in this book. It's certainly going to be a theme that runs through it. An outline for the book that we're going to see in the coming months. Chapters 1 through 3 deal with our position in Christ, who we are. It's very doctrine heavy. Chapters 4 through 6 is going to deal more with our practice in community, how we live out this new life, particularly within the context of the local church, what we do. Uh, so chapters 1 through 3, more about doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6, a lot about our duty as Christians. I want to draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. Because this is a prayer that I want us to kind of see for ourselves as we start this study. This is a prayer that Paul was praying for the people at Ephesus. It's a prayer that I want to pray for us. It's a prayer that I want you to pray for each other as well. As we work through the book of Ephesians, it says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And Paul's prayer was that the people reading this book would come to a deeper understanding, that their hearts would be enlightened about the hope that they've been called to, the riches that they enjoy as saints, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those of us who believe. And that's my prayer as well, that we would understand these things, that as a church, we would come to a deeper appreciation for who God is and how he works. So let's jump into the text and see a little bit about what's going on here. Uh, back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Point number one, if you're taking notes with us, is to celebrate with humility that God wills. Celebrate with humility that God wills. What do I mean by that? The idea that God wills certain things. The idea that God determines to do certain things that he has a plan and he carries out that plan, right? We can celebrate that and we can celebrate it with humility. Paul addresses the church at Ephesus and says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. By the will of God, Paul was doing certain things. He had been called to certain things, not because he chose it, but because God had willed it. This is a book that is going to, at times, put us in tension with with, with some of the things that we may think and feel about what God uh, does and who he is. We're going to be at tension at times with the concepts of chosen and predestination and some of these these words that maybe you've heard and never fully understood, right? Uh, Just give you a little bit of background on my journey in understanding the sovereignty of God, and that's obviously a big part of our church. It's part of our name of our church, right? Uh, that we have a hope in God's sovereignty, his, his, his control, his working, his, his authority. Um, when I was in school, I went up to Liberty University, grew up in a church that had a certain uh, bent in theology. Um, and I remember freshman year, we kind of had like this group of people that was similar to, for those of you that watched Saved by the Bell back in the day, like that, that group of kids that just sat at the max and like had their, their table where they hung out. That was me and a group of people my freshman year at Liberty. We had the back table in the back of the Marriott. That was our place. We ate lunch together every day. We hung out. We talked. We fellowshiped. We laughed. And there was a day that came that will live in infamy in my life where I sat down and the, the conversation turned towards theology. And there were individuals that were talking about heavy theology that I'd never really heard before, never been exposed to that were tied to God's sovereignty and God being in control of things and God working things and God doing things. And it was um, a a theology that sort of minimized the role of man's choice and man's free will and man's control over his life and and elevated God's control and God's will, right? Uh, I heard very little of what was being said at that table that day because of the presentation of of, of how it was being given to me. Uh, It was given in arrogance uh, it was given in a demeaning way. Um, it was given in such a way where the goal was supposed to be an elevation of God and a minimization of man, but really it turned into, 
look what we know, look what we believe, and look what you don't. Like, how could you not understand some of this stuff? Right? I remember walking away from that table being like, I don't know that I want to sit at the table anymore. Right? Like, I don't know if I like my friends at the max anymore. I think I might need a new lunch table. Right? For weeks, this kind of carried on, and, and it became like a hot point of contention, just talking theology, talking about how, uh, how God works and acts. And um, it actually started to play out in what we used to do on Thursday nights in the dorm was we had boxing nights, right? So there were nights where we're all friends, we're all buddies, but we would have like a fight card and we had boxing gloves and we would kind of call people out like, hey, Thursday night, you're fighting so-and-so, right? And so we'd have like Thursday night boxing sessions. Well, the theology started to spill over into the boxing night, right? And so I was challenged to box by one of these guys who was feeling some of these things theologically. And I was like, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you, right? And so um, I, I decorated myself in shirt, in a, in a, in a white t-shirt that, that highlighted what I believed theologically, right? I'm, I'm going to give you like a, a picture of this, right? I've cut out the guy's face. You can see the unedited version on our notes on Google Drive. And there's some other things on the shirt that don't need to be mentioned um, today either. Uh, but you can see like, like I was very intentional about emphasizing that, man, I have free will. I have choice. Like I'm, I'm operating outside in some ways of God's will or, or, or what God would do. Like I, I have the ability to choose certain things. And I remember after this fight and I did win the fight. I don't know why God allowed me to win the fight. I feel like maybe he, he could have taught me something by losing that fight. But I remember it was at that point where I really started to transition into, okay, I need to know what God's word says, not what these guys say. Right. And I began to study God's word and I began to study passages like Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2 that, that really draw upon God's will and how God carries out his plans. Um, I remember going to Snowbird and, and hearing the word taught in a totally different way than what I was experiencing at that lunch table. Right? And God began to open my heart and my mind and my understanding to what does it mean for God to be in control and how does man still fit into that because God obviously holds man accountable for his choices and his decisions. Right? And so as we work through Ephesians, we're going to see some tension because there's, there's aspects that are going to highlight God's will and God's control and God's choice. But then we're also going to see passages that, that really talk about man's accountability for his decisions too, right? And how man makes choices and, and he's held accountable for those choices. Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. So let's look specifically at how this plays out in Paul's life, okay? Number one, God's will is carried out in spite of our sin. Now think about who Paul is, right? Paul is a former persecutor of the church. You guys know that, right? Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. But Saul, who is Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's church enemy number one, right? Like the church would have hated this individual from the standpoint of being fearful of this individual because they would have heard about friends and relatives being put to death, being arrested, being persecuted by this individual Paul, this individual Saul, who was the kind of the poster boy for this movement, right? He prided himself in this. He's a Pharisee who would have been grouped with the people that Jesus was addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. These Pharisees who thought this outward zeal, this outward presentation of obedience was what God desired and what God wanted. Like 
inwardly dead, inwardly spiritually dead, right? Paul's killing Christians, and then God steps in, and God saves him in Acts chapter 9. And he makes him an individual who is an apostle, particularly to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11, verse 13. Paul says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles in as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul's not a Gentile himself, but God gives him the role of going to the Gentiles and making sure the gospel transcends not just the Jewish bloodline, but into the Gentile nations, right? And we can be grateful and thankful for that because most of us sitting here today have no ties to the Jewish nation. We're not, we're not Israelites, right? We don't, we don't trace our family history back to the Jewish nation. We're Gentiles. We're outside of that. And yet we can sit here saved by the grace of God because individuals like Paul took the gospel to Gentile cities. That Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through talks about him breathing out murderous threats. He goes from breathing out murderous threats to being a vessel for God to breathe out at least 13 letters of the New Testament. Right? The Bible says that, that God's word is breathed out. Right? And Paul becomes a vessel for it to be breathed out to us where he writes 13 letters of the New Testament after breathing out murderous threats. Here's an individual who was mired in sin, spiritually dead, and in opposition to God, an enemy of God, doesn't realize that he is. He thinks he's a, a proponent or a patriot for God, but he's an enemy of God. And God's going to carry out his will in spite of this sin. Number two, God's will is carried out in our salvation. Think again about Paul. He says he's called to be an apostle by the will of God. That term apostle carries with it the authority that comes from being commissioned by the risen Christ, right? We know that Paul saw the risen Christ, saw him on the road to Damascus. When Jesus stepped in, and, and here's what really happened. Think about what Paul's will was. What was Paul's choice for his life? I'm going to Damascus, and I'm taking care of anybody that aligns themselves with Jesus. That's what I'm choosing to do today, right? Like, this is my plan for my life. I'm going to kill Christians, and then Jesus overrides that, right? Like Jesus steps in. He steps in and, and God allows him to experience salvation. He goes from killing Christians. I mean, look what, we, what remember what we just read in Acts chapter 9. He's breathing out murderous threats. He's intent to go and destroy anybody that wants to belong to the way. The same chapter, verse 18, look what it says. After he's encountered the risen Christ. He, he has a conversation with Ananias, who God preps and says, hey, Ananias, I know you're going to be scared to death of this guy Paul saw because he kills Christians, but I need you to go talk to him, right? And so he has this conversation with Ananias, and it says immediately something like scales, scales fell from his eyes, and Paul regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Then look what it says. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
This is, this is the complete opposite of what he had been doing. And, and we're talking about like a matter of days where this changes. It's hard for us to, to have that passage resonate with us because when we think about Paul, we just think about the guy who wrote half the New Testament, right? We don't think about him in terms of what he was before. Let's just pretend for a minute, and, and we're really pretending here, okay? I'm not trying to push any type of conspiracy theory or agenda. But just think for a second, like, I have no idea really where the coronavirus came from. But let's just pretend that somebody created it. Can you imagine that the people that have been impacted by that? Can you imagine if I told you, hey, uh, the guy who did this got saved and he's going to be speaking at our church next week. We're really excited to, to hear him. You'd be like, are you serious? Like, do you know the death and the pain and the hurt that something like that would have caused? Can you imagine some of the, 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 the elected officials who are pro-abortion? If we said, hey, they're going to be speaking at the, the, the uh, fundraiser gala this year for the CPS. You'd be like, I ain't going to that. Like, that person is responsible for this. That's how it would have felt to this church. Paul's been killing Christians, and now you're going to let him show up and like teach? And for it to be confounded by his teaching, like to be amazed at his teaching. That's the type of impact that God has had in his life. And he, and he did a complete about face for him. Like Paul's heading in one direction and God steps in and says, that's not the way you're going to go. We're changing that right now. Right now we're changing that. He goes from killing Christians to confounding Jews. And, and here's, what's, here's what's mind-boggling, right? Because from our human standpoint, we could look at that and say, you know what? God got tired of Paul killing Jews or killing Christians. And he said, you know what? I'm going to stop that, right? Like I, did, I didn't see this coming. I'm going to stop that. And I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to save him and change him. But look what it says in Galatians. Galatians chapter one, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And while I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, look, God called me to something. He called me out of something. And this was his plan all along, right? He had me set apart all along for this. And he, and he, and he chose when he wanted to reveal the son to me and I responded to that. Like I put my faith in that and it radically changed me. But it was not a reactionary plan by God. He didn't say, I'm tired of this guy killing Christians. I got to do something different with him. It was the plan all along. And we see God's will in that. But then like from the human side, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, man, what does Stephen's family think about that? Because Paul killed Stephen, right? He martyred him. And if this was the plan all along to save him. If I'm Stephen's mom and dad, I'm saying, God, why didn't you do that before my son died? Like, why wouldn't you do that? But like, why was it your will to do this after my son was persecuted, after my son died? And I don't know why. I, I don't pretend to know God's will in everything. But what I've come to know through my study is that, that my hope lies with his will nonetheless. 
I don't understand it all the time. I don't understand why God would allow Paul to kill Christians and then save him if that was his plan all along. But what I know is that God works in the midst of our sin. He works in the midst of our mistakes to ensure that he is glorified and honored. Now, some people, some people see that and they have a hard time grappling with that and they want to, to minimize God's control and say, well, well, God must not be in control because if he's good, he wouldn't allow these things, so God's not in control. I don't know how you comfort yourself by saying that God's not in control, right? I'm, I find far more hope in a God who was in control of everything and I just don't understand him all the time, but I can rest that he's a wise God. He's a good God. He's made promises to me. He's going to fulfill those promises. I find great hope in that, even though he's confusing at times. He's confusing to your pastor a lot of times, right? But I don't ever want to push him and say, I'd be more comfortable if God wasn't in control and, and he's just trying to react and fix things that are happening, right? Paul says, this is God's will. It's God's will that I be this apostle and he called me to it. We can celebrate God wills things, that he controls things. We can do it with humility, though. We can celebrate the greatness of God. We can submit ourselves to his will, even we don't always understand it. Even when we would like to see things done differently, we can trust in his will. Number two, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, he calls the Christians. Now, remember, Paul's, Paul's been there. He, he spent about three years there in Ephesus before leaving, and it's probably been about 10 years since he was there with that ministry. So he's writing back to these Christians, and he's celebrating them, and he's talking about them being saints. He's talking about them being faithful. This, this term saint, uh, it, it's a weighty word. Um, it, it's a word, though, that's applied to all Christians here in Ephesus and really to all Christians even today in spite of our undeservingness, right? Like we don't, most of us aren't signing up and saying, that's right, glad somebody finally noticed that I am a saint, right? Most of us, when we hear the Bible call us saints, we kind of cringe at that, right? Because we know like, I know there's other people that are called saints, but I don't know if I fit into that category, right? Now, like the Catholic Church memorializes people as saints, right? So it's a weird process because when somebody dies, they have like a committee of people that try to determine if this person is or isn't a saint. There's a group that argues for it. They designate a group that tries to argue against it and tries to bring up reasons why they aren't saintly, right? And then if you pass that process, you're dead. But if you pass that process, then you get immortalized as a saint and you're recognized as, by the church that way, right? That, that's not how this plays out here for Paul. These people are still alive, Right? And he says, hey, I'm writing to you saints, all of you, right? All of you are considered this. Not only are they saints, though, they're saints in Ephesus, a miraculous place to be called a saint, a miraculous place to be called a saint. Think about the culture, the environment that we talked about. It's shocking that Christians, faithful Christians, could be found there, honestly. And it's a nod to God's grace and his will that anybody really in Ephesus could get saved and stay that way. But that's true today too. But let's try to think in extreme terms. This would be like Paul writing a letter and saying, to the faithful Christians who are serving in Washington right now, right? You might be like, I mean, how many of them are there, right? Because everything I hear from Washington is that it's corrupt and it's messed up and people are there for their own agendas. Like, 
to the faithful Christians who work in the movie industry in Hollywood. You're like, Kirk Cameron, his sister, um, his brothers, but they really live in Albany and do their movies down there. Like, I mean, how many like, people are in Hollywood that are like faithful, saintly Christians? Like, that's, that's what it would have felt like to write this about Ephesus, right? But God's grace, God's will is being carried out, even in this culture where so many evil things are happening. There are saints that are remaining faithful to the gospel, and Paul highlights that. Paul had spent time there as a faithful saint himself, and look at the impact that he had made. Back in Acts chapter 19, verse 22. And I long for us to have this type of impact individually, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, collectively as a church in this city. Look at the impact that was being made. It says, verse 22 of Acts 19, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away great, a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there, imagine that, like, having a conversation and saying, can you believe what Paul's saying? He's saying that the gods that we made with our own hands aren't really gods after all, right? Yeah, they're not because you made them, right? Um, And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. What's going on there? This guy Demetrius is like, hello, do you guys not see what's happening? Our businesses are being impacted because people are getting saved. They are no longer doing the things that they used to do, right? Like they are being impacted in such a way they're not buying our gods anymore. They're not selling themselves to these things anymore. They've done an about face. They've they've changed their behavior. They've changed their agenda. They've changed their hobbies. They've changed things about themselves and it's impacting us financially. I don't think for a second Demetrius cared about Artemis. I don't think he for a second cared about anything but the pockets in his cloak, right? He'd have been just fine with people saying, hey, I'm a Christian. Hey, I go to church, but I'll still buy some stuff from you after church. He would have been fine. He would have still been making his money, right? And for for a lot of us, we know that in our culture, Christians sometimes are known for claiming to be followers of Christ, but then engaging so much in the things of this world that the businesses aren't hurt by our faith, right? The activities aren't hurt by our faith, But Paul is leading a movement in Ephesus where to align yourself with Jesus leads to differences in the ways that you spend your money, in your your activity, your behavior, your hobbies. We need to make an impact in our environment with our set-apartness as well. He calls us a saint. That word saint really means to be set apart, to be different. Paul, an apostle called by the will of God, writes to these saints in Ephesus, these faithful in Christ Jesus. And he's reminding them that they need to be set apart. They need to be set apart and to be impactful 
by being set apart. Number two, we need to keep believing in Christ faithfully by relying on his grace and peace. The term faithful, the faithful in Christ Jesus, it's it's a word that means actively trusting or actively believing. they've, They've placed their faith in Jesus and they are continuing to do so. Right? We had missions emphasis week this past week at uh, Trinity's Middle School, and we were talking about the way salvation works. We have to hear the gospel, right? and then we have to respond to what we've heard. So people have to hear the gospel, and, and I told our middle schoolers, I said, the way that God does this is he uses human beings to do it. He doesn't typically communicate the gospel himself. He doesn't use an angel to do it. He uses human beings to do it. Sometimes he uses angels to get the ball rolling. We looked at the, the story of Cornelius in the book of Acts, where Cornelius was a God-fearer but didn't know about Jesus. Peter over here knows about Jesus but isn't too sure about Gentiles. Angel and Holy Spirit come and have a conversation with both and get them together so that the gospel can be shared so that Cornelius can be saved. Right? God uses human beings to get other human beings saved. Like he uses them to be the communication tool for the gospel. We, put, we have to hear the content of the gospel. We have to put our faith in the content of the gospel, and then we have to act in obedience to what we've heard, right? We saw that in the wise man and the foolish man in the Sermon on the Mount, right? The one who's a true believer obeys what he hears, right? These individuals have done that. They are faithful, and they are continuing to be faithful. That doesn't mean they're perfect, though, right? Because verse 2 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. We don't ever graduate from our need for grace. I love how this book starts with grace and peace, and it actually ends with grace and peace. So if you look to Ephesians chapter 6, at the very end of this book, and we'll get there at some point. It says, verse 23, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. All right, we need grace and peace every single day. Paul received both on the road to Damascus. Think about what he was saying on the road to Damascus um, in Acts chapter 9. Jesus shows up, he's blinded by the light, and, and he hears Jesus talking, and he's like, oh, who are you, Lord? Like, I don't know you. Jesus says, I'm who you're persecuting, right? That's who I am. I'm the one that you're persecuting, the one that you're killing. You're killing my followers, you're killing me. I am that one. Now look what he's saying in Ephesians 1. He's identifying Jesus as that Lord, right? He's not confused now. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has received grace and peace because he was at odds with God, right? He was killing and persecuting Christians. Now he's calling him Lord himself in Ephesians chapter one. We have to see ourselves as being recipients of that same type of grace and peace. We enjoy peace with God because his grace moves us from death to life. Why is that something we continue to need to hear? Because we make mistakes. We're going to fail this week. We're going to do things that we shouldn't do. We're going to do things that we regret. We're going to be convicted of things even today. But our identity lies in Christ and not in our performance, right? God has willed in us to move from death to life. He has saved us by his grace. He's given us peace with God, not because of anything that we've done, not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, which means we can't undeserve it or unearn it, right? Grace and peace continue to be things that need to characterize our thought process for our relationship to God, that we're at peace with him because Jesus has accomplished everything. No matter how bad our week is this week, Jesus had a perfect week, right? And he had another perfect week and another perfect week and another perfect week, right? So we have peace with God because of his perfection. And we have 
grace upon grace for the mistakes that we make even coming to Christ. We've moved from death to life, but we're still trying to figure out this life piece, right? And we're waiting for Jesus to come back and give us the glorified bodies that are completely separated from sin so that we get it fully figured out, right? But in the midst of waiting for Jesus, in the midst of that sanctification process, we still fail, we still sin, and we need that grace and peace reminder. It carries us through to stay faithful, not to get discouraged, not to doubt our saintliness, but to be reminded that our saintliness is tied to Jesus, right? And we can stay faithful because we know that grace and peace exists. I want to give you four things to, to write down real quick here. And I'm going to try, to try to do this in the sermons that it applies to. I want to give you these identity truths to remember. These are things that are true about you, whether you feel like it or not today. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. If you're a Christian, you are faithful. If you're a Christian, you are in Christ, not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, not because you achieved something, but by grace and peace, you are in Christ. And you also reside in an earthly location where you can make an impact. Told you that he writes to the people in Ephesus. That's where they were living. That's where they were placed. That's where they were supposed to be a faithful saint. We don't live in Ephesus. We live in the surrounding cities here. We work in surrounding jobs here. And I fully believe that what we want to take away from verses 1 and 2 today is what Paul was trying to drive home to these people at Ephesus. As he starts his book, he reminds them, hey, you guys are saints. You're faithful saints. And that's a miraculous thing because you live in Ephesus where the only reason to explain that you're a Christian is by God's grace, by God's will, because, man, there are so many temptations, so many other things going on that should draw you away. But God keeps you faithful, right? He's saying the same thing to us today, that we are saints, that we are faithful. We live here in Sonoy, Peachtree City, Noon in Sharpsburg, Griffin, Turin, uh, Hogansville, outside of Hogan'sville, Logan, we got people everywhere, right? And we're called to be faithful there. We're called to be saints there. We're called to make an impact there, to turn that city upside down, to have people come to Christ, for businesses to be impacted, for the industry to be impacted by the change the gospel's making in our life. The application that I want to give you, we, we talked last, we've talked the last couple of weeks about creating a culture of obedience here, where we hear things, we do things. I want to be Real clear that when I throw up application at the end, this is, not, this is not God's word that you have to obey, right? So don't feel bad if you don't do my application things. I'm trying to get the ball started for you thinking about how to apply what you just heard today. So these are suggestions. These are things that we can rally around together as a church, but don't feel bad if you do two out of three, if you do one out of three, if you don't do any out of three. Be convicted if you don't do anything at all, right? Like hear the word today and then do something with what you've heard, right? Application for, for us this week that you could take advantage of. Number one, to, be, to go back and read Acts 18 through 20, chapters 18 through 20, to gain a deeper understanding of Paul's time in Ephesus. That'll help you better understand our study in the coming months about what these people had already gone through, what they had already seen and heard from Paul. Number two, to read through the whole book. Read Ephesians chapter one through six to gain an overview of where we are headed in the coming year. Those, those are easy things. You can, you can carve out time in your schedule to sit and read. Number three is where we press in a little bit. The idea of us being saints who are faithful, who make an impact in our area. Man, I'd love for you to take some time to make a list 
of the unholy norms of your common environments, things that we should be separated from. If we're saints, what are some things that we should do different than the norm? So think about your environments, your normal places of of habitude during the week. What are some unholy norms that are just kind of accepted in those environments? And what are some ways that you can be set apart in response? What are some unholy norms? What are some things that are just accepted, practices that are tolerated in your environments that, that are not really aligned with Scripture, that really a Christian should probably be doing differently? And what are some ways that you can live set apart moving forward, ways that you can live different? You can be a saintly individual, a faithful individual who's making an impact in your Ephesus. Paul says he's an apostle by the will of God, and he's writing to individuals who are saints, who are faithful. And it's all because of the grace and peace that we enjoy from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we love you. But God, we thank you for loving us first. We thank you that we can trust your goodness, your wisdom. We can trust your will. And God, we thank you that you willed for us to be saved that you determined for people to come into our life to share the gospel with us. Because we were, we were on paths that were heading in a totally different direction. All of us have our Paul story where you stepped in, stopped us in our tracks, and communicated something way different than what we were living for. God, I thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us to the point where our eyes were opened where the scales fell off, we could see reality as it truly is, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we are rebellious in need of grace and peace. God, I pray that we would would embrace the identity that you're communicating to us already in two verses this morning. That by being a follower of you, by being saved, by being a Christian, We are now saints, not because we've achieved something, not because a a council determined that we were. We are saints because of your work through Jesus Christ in our life. That we are identified with his death, with his life, with his resurrection. God, help us to see that as saints, we are called to be set apart. We are called to be faithful. We are called to be different in our city, in our workplace, in our environment. We are called to make an impact like the people in Ephesus were making. God, we thank you for your grace and peace this morning. We thank you that Jesus came and and made us who were enemies of God, sinners, and you've made us right with you. You've made us friends of God. You've made us sons and daughters. I praise you for that. And the only way to explain it is by your will. We thank you for your grace and your peace today. Give us wisdom in knowing how to live out the things that we've heard. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.